need that prayer. Good morning. Wow, look at you out there. That's amazing. Thanks for coming. That is wonderful to see you so committed to studying God's Word that you would come out. Hey, at least we don't have rain today. Or not yet. <laughs> we thought we'd do something a little different. We'll, we'll have snow. This has been a crazy beginning. Thanks for being here this morning. Today we're going to finish up Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Um, and then next week, Shelley Davis is going to come and we're going to look at Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. And then after that, uh, we're going to look at Peter's letters to the Christians in Asia Minor. So you've got mail. We still have more to come. And I hope that you have enjoyed this first letter to the Thessalonians as much as I have. What a great letter of encouragement filled with instructions. Uh, I have Life's Little Instruction Book. My son picked this up the other day when he was at my house. It stays on the end table. Um, it's been there for years, and he picked it up and looked at it. And it's, it's kind of a funny little book. A dad wrote it for his son that was going off to college. And this is volume two because he had so many instructions that he had to write another book, which is pretty funny. Some of them are pretty, uh, you know, kind of no-brainers. You wonder why he felt like he needed to put it in here. Like instruction 839, never grab at a falling knife. I'm glad he felt like he had to tell that to his son. Here's one that needs a little more um, explanation. Don't outlive your money. We could hear a little bit more about how that works. And then some of them are just uh, good common sense. Accept a breath mint if someone offers you one. (laughs) I try to do that. I like this one. Um, Be as friendly to the janitor as you are to the chairman of the board. That's good. Never buy anything electrical at a flea market. That's, that's good, too. And then my very favorite, um, I don't know if I can find it in here. Let's see, 755. It says, use a favorite picture of a loved one as a bookmark. That's really cool. You might want to try that. That's a life's little instruction book. But today, we're going to look at Paul's list of instructions. Now, I don't know that he um, wrote that for us to live a happy life. I think what he was more interested in was that we live a godly life, a pure life, a life that pleases God, a holy life. Those are all titles that I had thought of using for this lesson today as I read and studied these verses. And then I realized what I think Paul is really saying is that we need to live life holy. Not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy, holy focused on God. Holy devoted and loving God. Our whole mind and our whole heart turned towards God. We don't want to be divided in our thoughts and our actions. Um, It reminded me of that verse in Psalm 8611 that we studied last semester. It's on your verse sheet. It says, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. We want to be wholly focused on God. And that's what this lesson is about today. And it's really about sanctification. And that's a big theological word, kind of a religious word, a church word that we don't really see out in the marketplace. I can't think of one time in all the years I've been a nurse at JPS that I've ever heard anyone talking about sanctification. And yet, its meaning is very important to us. 
I also think that the meaning can be confusing to us. And so my prayer for weeks has been that this lesson would be clear and that most importantly, it would encourage you. So we're going to talk about sanctification. A simple definition, um, it means set apart for holy living to be used by God. Set apart, no, sorry, never mind. Set apart for holy use by God. Set apart for holy use by God. We're set apart by God and we're used by God. Now, you know when we believe in Jesus, when we accept him as our Savior, we are made right with God. We are sanctified. We are set apart for holy use. So there's three ways you can look at sanctification. And the first is this way, positionally. We are um, in Christ. Our position is in Christ. We have been made holy through the blood of Christ that he shed on the cross. And when God looks at us through the blood of Christ, he sees us holy and blameless, sanctified. We see that in Hebrews 10.10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And yet we know that we still do things that are unholy. We make mistakes. We're not perfect. But we're told to live pleasing God more and more. And so that sounds to me like we can grow in our holiness. We can grow. And this is called progressive sanctification. It's that ongoing process where we're becoming more and more like Christ. It's the carrying on to perfection The work began in regeneration. Regeneration, that's when we become a new creature, when we accept Christ. It begins with our trust in Christ, and it goes on throughout our life. And we see that in Philippians 1, 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ's return. Now, perfect sanctification is not attainable in this life. Perfect sanctification comes when we go on to glory with Jesus, when we go to be in the presence of Jesus in heaven. Then we can know perfect sanctification or ultimate sanctification. Some people call that glorification. And we talked about that last week. We said when Jesus comes back, we are going to receive glorified bodies. And he's going to present us to the Father, holy and blameless. We read that also in Jude 24. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. It's perfect sanctification. Now that we've had that lofty theological discussion, we're going to get into the lesson. And today's lesson is really talking about that second kind of sanctification, progressive. Or some people call it experiential. That ongoing process of becoming more and more like Christ, growing in holiness, or I like to think wholeness, a whole person with our mind and our heart turned towards God. So let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to begin with chapter 1. All right. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord to do this more and more. I love it that, and let's go on to read too. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. I wanted to say that because I wanted right up front to know this isn't Paul's little instruction book. This comes from the authority of Jesus, our Lord Jesus himself. That is what Paul is going to instruct us. 
And he tells us to live a life in order to please God. That word there for live in the Greek is peripateo, and it literally means to walk. But it has the connotation of living life. And it's a favorite word of Paul's. We see it throughout his letters, and we use it as Christians too. We talk about our spiritual walk or our um, Christian walk, our walk with Christ. We use that metaphor a lot. Walk is a metaphorical way of um, describing our moral conduct. And Paul uses it here to encourage the Thessalonian believers in their spiritual development. And he says their motivation to correct living is to please God. We love God, and so we want to please God. My husband and I have the privilege of being uh, marriage mentors for young people at Christ Chapel that are going to get married. And it's a great and fun thing because there's nothing better than seeing young people in love. It's uh, refreshing and it's fun. And you really see in those people how they want to please that person they love, especially in light of the Super Bowl last week. It was interesting, this little young gal, she could have cared less about football, but all of a sudden she was all about going to that Super Bowl game with um, Super Bowl game party to watch it with this guy that she was in love with. She wanted to please him because she loved him. We want to please those people that we love. We love God, and so we want to live to please him. Let's look at verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. So right here, Paul uses the word sanctified, meaning holiness, meaning set apart. Just like in the Old Testament, as the Israelites, God's chosen people were set apart from the other nations. They were to follow God's laws. They were to be holy people. They had this ongoing relationship with the living God. They obeyed God and loved God, and God blessed them. And as other people saw this nation Israel loving God and having a relationship with him, then they too would come and follow after God. That was the plan. That was God's plan. We studied that when we looked at Deuteronomy last year. That's what Deuteronomy was all about. And now Paul is saying this very same thing to the Thessalonians. Most of them were um, Gentiles. They weren't Jewish believers. They were Gentiles believing in Christ. And they um, are told here that they were to be sanctified, set apart, that this is God's will. And the first thing he tells them in this is avoid sexual immorality. So let's go on and read verse 4. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. Paul calls them to sexual purity. Now let me remind you what was going on in Thessalonica in Paul's day. It was this large commercial harbor city. It was on the Ignatian Road that connected Rome with Asia. And it was a modern city, very much a part of the Greco-Roman world. And that culture was very tolerant of all kinds of sexual conduct, promiscuous behavior, um, perverted behavior. That was the norm. It was expected that there would be sexual activity outside of marriage. There were prostitutes and mistresses and concubines. It was not only tolerated, but it was encouraged. Prostitution was big business in Thessalonica. Um, I read that the 
pagan Greek religions used prostitution in that. It was the priestly prerogative to do that. And then I read this quote by a prominent Greek. His name was Demosthenes. And he says this. Mistresses, we keep for our pleasure concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being. Mistresses, we keep for our pleasure concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being and wives to bear us legitimate children and to serve as trustworthy guardians over our households. Now that is pretty sad. That's a pretty sad commentary of life in Thessalonica. Sexual immorality was rampant. So with this in mind, it makes sense that Paul would um, call them to God's standard. God's standard, which is sexual intimacy inside marriage of a man and a woman. He's telling them, control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Paul's saying to the believers, followers of Jesus, you must learn how to deal with sexual temptations. You know, it's no different for us today. We live in a culture where sexual immorality runs rampant. Now, our culture may give lip service to the thought that cheating on your wife is bad behavior. And we've certainly seen a lot in the news lately about sexual addiction. But to me, it just seems so hypocritical. Because every other TV show or movie or new novel that you read has sexual immorality in it. I've been convicted this very week of some of the things that I watch on TV. Sexual immorality, it creeps in to everything we do almost. We have to stand against it. You know, some young people grow up, they come to know um, Jesus as young adults. They don't even know that living with your boyfriend is not God's standard. They don't know God's standard. No one's ever told them that God's standard is sexual intimacy between a man and a woman inside marriage. And how do we wrong our brother or take advantage of him? You know, I thought about that question a lot this week. It's pretty easy to see how the Thessalonians were wronging their brothers and sisters in Christ. But how do we do that today? You talked about this in your small group. I'm sure you had some pretty good answers. One thing that came to my mind is how we dress. Now, some of you are saying, oh, no, not this again, not how we dress. But I really think we need to be careful about that. We must not dress provocatively. And we need to teach our daughters and our granddaughters that men um, and boys are visual. And that it's not right to dress in a way that tempts them to have these um, sexual thoughts. Now, we also need to tell our sons that they need to turn away, that they also need to not look, that they need to exercise self-control. But we have a part in that. We need to dress in a way that pleases God. One of my latest irritations, I don't mean to really offend you guys, I just don't know what we're thinking, these little shorts and skirts that have something written right across the rear. I mean, how can we think that's a good thing? Our little junior high girls, these sweet things, and every guy's eyes are just right there focused on their little rear where something's written. You know, that that can't be right. So anyway, enough said about that. Probably more than enough said. Let's go on. I just want to say that uh, we need to individually learn and exercise self-control. And why do we do this? Verse 7 tells us, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Why do we do this? We do it for God's sake, to please him. 
We don't want it. We do not want to reject him. We want to please him. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says this. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We want to guard what comes in our mind and in our eyes and what we think about. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let's go on and read verse 9. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Paul is commending the Thessalonians, and he is encouraging them. He says, love one another just like you've been doing. Good job. Keep it up. The way we handle our sexual behavior can set us apart for God. Making godly choices stands out in our society today, just like it did in Thessalonica. And the second thing that makes a statement, a second thing that marks us as believers as Christ followers, is the love we have one for another, the love that we have for other believers. Now, there's nothing the unbelieving world jumps on faster than sexual sins in a Christian leader or, secondly, discord among Christians. You know, you've seen denominations have their... Uh, conventions or their conferences, and there's a subject of debate that comes up. Um, there's some disagreement. I mean, the world loves to point that out. It's on the front page of the paper. It's in the 6 o'clock news. They love to point out the disagreements that believers have with one another. But I think the positive can, statement can also be made when we love one another, when they see that we care about one another. This brotherly love that Paul mentions here, the Greek word for that is Philadelphia. Brotherly love is Philadelphia. Now, we've talked about agape love. That's God's love. That's the love we have for everyone. But here he's talking about a special love that we have for believers. It's Philadelphia, that brotherly love. We love um, other believers, and we want the best for them. I have a friend. She always sees the best in other believers. Um, she's always, I don't know if she's looking for it or if she just sees the best, but she sees the best in other believers and she wants the best for them. She's not envious or jealous when good things come their way. She's happy for them because she loves them and she wants the best for them. My son-in-law is like that. He always has a positive thing to say about someone. That is Philadelphia love. It reminds me of Amy Carmichael, the missionary to India. She would often say, if she was in a group or a prayer meeting and things weren't right, she'd say, I think there is unlove. She, she used that word, unlove, one between someone here. So let's scatter. And if you have unlove for another believer in this room, go to them and make amends because it's so important. It's important because Jesus tells us that in John 13, Verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you want love one another. It's important. Paul tells the Thessalonians that they were taught by God, that they knew this Philadelphia love. They were taught by God. And that um, reminds me of that verse in Jeremiah 31 where God says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. 
The Thessalonians had been taught by God. He had written the law on their hearts. Is there a fellow believer that you are having trouble loving today? Maybe someone that's hard for you to love? Go to God with that and let him change your heart. Let him write Philadelphia love on your heart. Let's go on and look at uh, verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Paul encourages the Thessalonians to be all about peaceful, diligent work. This wins the respect of unbelievers. The followers of Jesus, we must be people of integrity. We must be hardworking and honest. Last week, we talked about Jesus returning um, and so for the believers and how the Thessalonians were like many first century Christians. They thought that Jesus was going to return any minute, that it, his return was imminent. And so some of them had stopped working. They were just waiting for Jesus' return. You know, we have a dual focus. We are to look for Jesus' return. But at the same time, while we're on this earth, we're to live for Christ. And so Paul tells them, work with your hands and don't stir up trouble. Mind your own business. Um, I'm sure some of you have heard, like I did growing up, that little phrase, idle hands are the devil's workshop. How many people had somebody say that to you growing up? Yeah. Especially when you're young, you want to play idle hands or the devil's workshop. Well, I looked to see where they were getting that in the Bible, and it could have come maybe from 1 Timothy 5.13, because this is what Paul says to Timothy. They get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. Now, he's talking about... Christian women um, when he's saying this. And I think that it's a good teaching. Sometimes when we are idle, we do become busybodies and gossips. And Paul says it like this, mind your own business. Now, that's almost a joke, that verse in our house, because my husband Scott takes it very seriously. This is one of the things he loves to say, mind your own business. And so over the 35 years of marriage, he has had to say this to me countless times. I don't know why I keep doing it, but I keep coming to him and I'll say, Scott, what do you think I should do? So-and-so is to, and I think I should, and he's like, and now we've just shortened it, M-Y-O-B, M-Y-O-B. And I'm like, oh, you know, and I walk away. And then I'll do it again. I'll say, Scott, I just talked to so-and-so and they're thinking, and I think I should, M-Y-O-B. I mean, he doesn't even listen until I get to the end of it anymore. It's just M-Y-O-B. You know, I laugh about that, but I'm grateful to God for Scott's discernment. Because the Holy Spirit works to sanctify me through my husband. Next time you're thinking about getting involved in um, someone's life or business, maybe you need to ask God, do I need to mind my own business? Okay, let's go on now and look at chapter 5, verse 12. We're going to look at a few more uh, instructions. Paul so far has instructed the Thessalonians on three categories. Sexual purity, brotherly love, and orderly living. Three ways that their whole life reflects their whole devotion to God. Three ways that we are set apart for God. Then Paul ends his letter with a few more instructions beginning in verse 12. 
Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Paul's saying here, respect your spiritual leaders and live in peace. Now let's think back to this young church in Thessalonica, this body of believers. Paul was there maybe three weeks, maybe up to two months. He wasn't there a very long time. And in that time, all these believers came to know the Lord at about the same time. And yet, there's spiritual leaders among them. It's possible that Paul picked out these spiritual leaders, and also, even more probable, it was done according to the gifts of the Spirit. Because we know when we become believers, God gives us spiritual gifts. And he gives us different spiritual gifts. As believers, we are all on the same level with each other. But we are not all given the same gift. We're given different spiritual gifts. And we use our spiritual gifts to serve the Lord and to build up the body of believers. Some are given the gift of teaching. Some are given the gift of um, administration. These are leaders. Others have the gift of encouragement or giving or mercy or faith. All the gifts are important. One is not better than the other. They're all important, and they all work together to serve the Lord. The phrase here um, that says, who are over you, is a verb that's used for informal leadership. And the word admonish means to correct while not provoking or embittering. Now, I like that. I just want to say that again because I think it's a good thing for us to know. To admonish means to correct while not provoking or embittering. But for me, the most important phrase in it is in the Lord. In the Lord. This is spiritual leadership and authority. And we are to hold them with high regard and love because of their work. Dr. Walford says that when we recognize God is using a man, it is in the end a recognition of God and his sovereign choice of divine grace and gifts and not of the man himself. Does that make sense to you? We respect our spiritual leaders because we are recognizing God. We're recognizing God's choice and recognizing God's gifts, recognizing how God is enabling someone to do their work. We don't esteem the man. We esteem the work that he is doing, that God is enabling him to do. And Paul calls them to live in peace, to live in peace with each other. So you can imagine what's happening. It's what's happened um, in our world today sometimes. We all want to be leaders. There's certain leaders and someone else is probably thinking, hey, I want to be a leader. Why do you get to be the leader? But the truth is, we're not all good leaders. Some of us don't need to be leading. We don't need to be. We need to be followers. We need to be living in peace with one another following those that are called to be the leaders. Think of some ways that you can love and encourage your spiritual leaders. Let's go on and look at verse 14, and it says, And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. I have on your outline, be thoughtful in your relationships. 
And what I mean by that is to be attentive and discerning of the needs of other people. You know, the needs of people are different, and we need to um, be discerning when we look at people to see what their needs are. You know, we're not all the same. We're not all in the same place. We're not all thinking the same. Sometimes it's hard for me because I sort of tend to think everybody's thinking like I am. But the truth is, people aren't thinking like I am. Usually they're thinking different from me. I need to be discerning as I talk with people and as I see what their needs are. And Paul mentions a few of those here. He talks about um, the, uh, the unruly, or um, what's the word that he uses here? The idle. Some translations say unruly. And it says they need to be warned. They're the ones that are a little bit out of line. But let me say um, to you, after years of experience, not everybody is going to listen to you. The truth is we only have a small sphere of influence with a few people. Those are the people that if we warn them, they are likely to listen to us. So you always want to begin with prayer and think, God, is this somebody that would listen to me as I warn them? If not, maybe we just need to pray for them and pray for that right person to talk to them. The second category he lists here are the timid or the faint-hearted. They're the ones with doubts or fears. They need encouragement. They need our encouragement. Then he mentions the weak. They lack spiritual or moral strength. Maybe they're the ones that are easily led astray. They need support. They need someone to lean on. They need someone to walk along beside them. Then he talks about um, be patient with everyone. You know, there's a lot of wearisome people out there. And we're called to be patient with them. And maybe I'm the one that's wearisome for you. And I'm saying be patient with me. We need to be patient with each other. And then lastly, he says, don't try to get even. Don't repay evil with evil. Instead, be kind to everyone. Okay, now let's think about what's going on here. You know, he's saying be kind in the face of unkindness. But we remember that the Christians in Thessalonica were being persecuted. They were being physically mistreated. They were being thrown into jail. Some of them were being killed. Pretty hard to be kind in that situation. Others were discouraged because Jesus hadn't returned yet. They were thinking he was coming, but he hadn't come yet. So they were beginning to doubt or to, um, you know, have worries or fears. All kinds of situations and stressors were on these first Christians, causing them to be idle or timid and fearful or spiritually weak and discouraged or wearisome or unkind. We need to be aware of each other's needs today. Because just like them, we have all kinds of stressors and situations in our lives that cause us to act in different ways. So we need to be aware of each other's needs and to act accordingly in love. And sometimes, maybe oftentimes, we're in one of those categories. And we need fellow believers to lift us up, to walk alongside us, and to encourage us. It takes prayer and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. He will lead us. This is wholly loving others as we wholly love God. And then look at verse 16. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you 
in Christ Jesus. Now, here we are looking at our attitude. It's our spirit being wholly aligned with God. Brother Lawrence called it practicing the presence of God. When you have your face, always turn towards God. Having your face turned towards God enables us to be joyful always. What does that mean, be joyful always? You know, I think that it's the opposite of complaining always. And it's pretty easy to see that in your own life. Just listen to what you say on a routine basis. You know, I was thinking of myself, I'm pretty joyful. And then I listened one day and I'm complaining about the weather. I'm complaining about the construction that's going on down my street that's been going on for a year. I'm complaining about this and that. And I thought, whoa, I'm not very joyful. I'm complaining. That's the opposite of rejoicing always. When you're rejoicing always, it shows that you're leaning back into Jesus. You're trusting him in all the things that are going on around you. You're facing wholly towards him so you can rejoice. You can rejoice in the midst of any circumstance because you have the joy of God's presence with you. And then Paul says, pray continually. Pray continually. What is that? It doesn't mean that we're on our knees with our eyes closed. It means that we talk to God throughout our day. And more and more, as you recognize God is always present with you. You're talking to God when you're washing the dishes and making the bed and in the car. Maybe even when you're around other people. You're talking to them and you realize God's with us too and you begin talking to him. Uh, we, some of you know Lynn Fisher. She used to come to this church a while back, and she would talk about her mentors, the Bettys. And she would say they would go on hikes, and they'd be talking. They were older than she was, mentoring her, and they were talking to each other. And then all of a sudden, one of the Bettys would just be talking to God. And she'd realize, who's she talking? Oh, she's talking to God. That's how real God was in their lives, that as they went throughout their day, they were talking to God. I think that's what it means to pray continually. When you're wholly focused towards God, realizing the presence in your life, you can pray continually. And when those first two things are happening, then that third thing happens. Give thanks. Give thanks. Whatever the situation is, you're thanking God. If you're in the midst of something great, good news coming your way, you thank God. If you're in a really difficult and hard situation... You thank God that he is there with you in the midst of that. He is getting you through that. He's walking alongside that. And you thank God in the midst of that. Then in verse 19 it says, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. This is our mind turning holy towards God. Those last three things were our spirit, our attitude turning towards God. This is our mind turning holy towards God. And, and Paul is really saying there, yield to the Holy Spirit. When you know something is wrong and you do it anyway, that's quenching the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit here, Paul uses kind of that... Um, an analogy, or he talks about the Spirit's fire. And that's because the Spirit sometimes um, is manifested in fire. We know that when the Israelites were in the wilderness, God's Spirit, the Shekinah glory, led them in the wilderness, and at night it was a pillar of fire. And we know during Pentecost, when um, Peter was preaching, they saw little flames of fire above people's head. So Paul uses that expression there, putting out the Spirit's fire. 
Some of your translations may be, say, quenching the spirit. How do we quench the spirit? We've already said when we know something is wrong and you do it anyway, that quenches the spirit. When you know you're supposed to be doing something and you don't do it, that is quenching the spirit. That's putting out the spirit's fire. We need to yield to the teaching and prompting of this Holy Spirit. Yield to him. And be discerning. The word of God is truth. So when someone is preaching or teaching, something comes across, test it against the word of God. Test it and see, is it truth? Take what I'm saying today and hold it up against the word of God and see, is this truth? And then you hold on to that which is truth and you reject the untruth. Be discerning. Be discerning as you hear people talking about the word. Be discerning in life as you hear people talking about life. What is truth? And then Paul closes here in verse 23. He says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul closes all these instructions by saying, May God sanctify you. It is God. It is the Spirit living in us that does the work. And this is the tension of this whole lesson. We feel like we just got a list of do's and don'ts. And so we need to run out of here and begin doing those things that uh, we heard about or stop doing those things we're not supposed to be doing. We say, okay, God does his part. I'm going to do my part. I'm going out to do my part. You know, I don't think it's a 50-50 deal. In fact, I'm going to be bold and say it's really all God's part. It's all God's part. I grew up thinking God helps those who help themselves was in the Bible. How many of you thought that was a Bible verse? Maybe you still do. God helps those who help themselves. No one. Good. Because it's not a Bible verse. But I grew up thinking that. I grew up um, loving God but thinking, i got to do my part. And I was all about that. I was out there looking around, running around, trying to do my part. What's my part? What do I need to be doing? And as I've gotten older, I've thought, you know what happens when you do that? You're focusing on you. I was focusing on me. I wasn't focusing on God. I was focusing on me. And what's my part? And what am I supposed to be doing for God? Now, you say to me, Deb, there is effort involved. I've thought about this, and I've prayed about this a great deal. And I think the effort is our turning holy to face God. The effort is turning holy to love God, to wholly be devoted to God. And when we do that, we follow God with our bodies and our relationships and our spirit and our mind. The effort is aligning your whole will with God. Now, we've just looked at 20 things involved in our spiritual life. Paul has just told us these things. The correct spiritual living. He doesn't want us to be ignorant of it. And I think it's good to have those in our mind. To give the Holy Spirit something to work with. 
But the challenge is to walk out of here loving God wholly, being motivated by love for God, not out of guilt that I'm not doing something or I need to be doing something. Let the Holy Spirit work through you because it says that he's faithful, that he will do it. We want to wholly love God. I want to close with a story. It's a little tree growing on the top of a mountain. And there were other trees there too. And one day they're all talking about what they want to become. And one said, I want to be a big sailing ship. And another one said, I want to be a treasure chest. And this little tree said, I just want to stay here on the mountain and grow tall. And I want to point to heaven so that when men look at me, they think of God. So the little tree was surprised one day when the woodcutters came and cut down the other trees and cut down the little tree as well. And he was even more surprised and confused when he was thrown on the back of a wood pile. Many days passed and many nights passed and the little tree almost forgot his dream until one Friday morning he was startled as his beams were yanked from the wood pile and he flinched as he was carried through a jeering, angry crowd. And he shuddered as soldiers nailed a man to him. He thought it was ugly and hard and horrible. But on Sunday morning, when the sun rose and the earth trembled with joy beneath him, the little tree knew that God's love had changed everything. And he smiled as he realized that from then on, when men looked at him, they would think of God. Let's wholly love God and let him do the work in us because it tells us the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a mighty God, a loving God. Father, you set us apart and you sanctify us. You love us so much, Father. I pray that each of us here would be able to grasp that love. Father, that we would wholly love you in turn. Father, that you would work in us to make us more and more like Christ. We ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Deb. Great job. Um, Jane Thomas wanted me to tell everyone that you get extra credit.